Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And today, Paul officially makes it to Jerusalem. If you've been following along with us the last few weeks, he's been making his way back to Jerusalem and he finally gets there. I can't imagine exactly what Paul might have been feeling as he got back to Jerusalem. Because if you study the chronology of the book of Acts, he's been away from Jerusalem for about 15 years. That's a long time to be away from anywhere. And if you know Paul's history in Jerusalem, this was a place he had a lot of connection. He had trained with Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He, after he uh, became a Pharisee, you know, he persecuted the saints in Jerusalem. Paul participated in the murder of Stephen outside or near Jerusalem. But after Paul came to Christ on the road to Damascus, he had a great relationship with the Christians in Jerusalem. But, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from my study of the book of Acts, the last time he's been back to Jerusalem was when he went back with Barnabas and what we know as the Jerusalem Council when they were trying to correct the issue that many of the Jews were pushing that for a Gentile to really be saved and accept Jesus Christ, they had to also be circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas went back to Jerusalem to set the record straight on that. But after they left Jerusalem that time, they've not been back. Paul, on his missionary journey, has heard about the spiritual and the physical needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And he has a great desire to get back to this city. He's been, as we looked at a few weeks ago, collecting an offering from churches all around, churches that Paul had helped to start. And one of his purposes in taking that offering to Jerusalem was so that the Jewish believers would understand that the Gentile believers had truly been saved. I mean, when you take an offering from somebody to somebody else, they, they say, wow, something really changed in their life. They're, they're giving money to help me. And so Paul now has arrived back in Jerusalem. But even after all of this ministry, all of the work that God has done, Paul still faces great challenges. In fact, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this. Paul has been told over and over again that when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's going to be put in chains, in bonds. And as you'll see this morning, that's exactly what happened to him. But even in the face of that difficulty, even in the face with the prospect of imprisonment, Paul was faithful to continue on the ministry of the gospel that God had given him. That being said, as he carried out the ministry of the gospel, Paul often faced those who misunderstood the work of the gospel. And that's what I want us to really look at this morning because I think in this narrative, in this story of Paul as he gets back to Jerusalem and, and some of his interactions there, you really see Paul working through a time where there were a bunch of people that really misunderstood the work of the gospel in somebody's life. I don't know if you understand, I'm sure you do though, but you've probably had a time in your life when someone has misunderstood what you were trying to do. Maybe you were trying to do something nice for somebody else and it just didn't work out how you planned and instead it ended up not working out so well. I remember 
this was not really doing something nice, but there was a guy in our office when I used to work in sales, and he was always playing jokes and pranks on other people, and so I thought, well, we'll have a little fun. He likes to play pranks. We'll play a little joke on him. And so we played a little joke on him, but he didn't take it as a little joke. He got really offended, and so I had to go and apologize and say, hey, listen, you're always pulling jokes. And so I thought, you know, this wouldn't be a big deal, and you would just laugh about it. And when he misunderstood and when he took it very personally and it was just a little thing, we realized, okay, he can dish it, but he can't take it. And so we just kind of got to tread lightly around, around this guy. Paul is facing something much more important, though, because Paul's not playing a prank on anybody. He's carrying out the ministry that God's given him to do. And yet, even in doing that, people misunderstood his purpose. People misunderstood what he was doing. And some even lied about him and twisted what he said to try to make it look as if he was doing something else entirely. I don't know about you, but if you give your life to do something and other people make fun of it or tell, tell lies about it, that could be really discouraging. And for many, it might even cause you to just want to quit. But I'm so thankful this morning, as you will see, that even in the face of great struggle, misunderstanding, lies told about him, Paul continued faithfully because he knew whom he had believed and he was persuaded that God would keep him until that day. He was confident of this very thing as he wrote to the church in Philippi that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That God is faithful to will and to do of his good pleasure. This morning, I want to encourage you that when circumstances get tough or when detractors come, if you will stay faithful to the work that God has given you to do, even though it may be difficult, as the psalmist write, Ye wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that even there God is with you and God upholds you and He comforts you and He helps you even when difficult times come. Let's look this morning, Acts chapter 21. Let's begin reading in verse number 17. Bible says, and when we, this is Luke and Paul and this other band of believers who, when we were come to Jerusalem, says the brethren received us gladly. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James. James is the leader, it seems, of the church there in Jerusalem, probably the pastor, and all the elders were present. This James is not James the brother of John. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. And it says, And when he had saluted them, he declared, this is Paul, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And look at the beginning of verse 20. It says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. I love this statement. In verse 19, where it says, He declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by His ministry. Paul's traveled. He's been all over the world. He's preached the gospel. He's been in prison. He's been stoned. God's protected him. God has done miracles through him. They've seen people healed. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen incredible work go on for the work of God. But Paul doesn't take any credit for himself. Paul is here and he says that he declared particularly unto them what God had wrought among the Gentiles. 
You see, when it comes to the work of God, while it may be misunderstood by others, we should always remember that the work of the gospel is the work of God. Paul, as he got back, he was sharing with them that God was at work among the Gentiles, that believers were coming and growing and disciples were being made as these Gentiles were trusting in Christ as the gospel went out to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. As it says in Acts 1.8, that it would go to Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, and now to the uttermost part of the earth. And Paul is coming back to Jerusalem. He's saying, it's happened. The work that God promised, that Christ himself promised to his disciples in Acts 1.8, that is what is taking place. And Paul is careful to give all the glory to God. He says, the work that God has wrought. One commentator pointed out that when it's written for us, he declared particularly. In the Greek, this is the idea that he gave them the whole story. Uh, Paul didn't leave anything out. He, he, let, he told them every detail, particularly. He wanted them to know exactly what God had done. You know, I think that's a great example for us because we can be busy about the work that God has given to us, but if we come back and act like it's not a big deal what God is doing, then we're missing out on the opportunity to bring glory to God. If we think that somebody getting saved is just ho-hum, it's old hat, it's just old news, well, that happens all the time. No, it's always good news when somebody trusts Christ. It's always worth giving glory to God when He transforms a life. The work of the gospel is a work of God. And Paul was careful to share all of the work and give all the glory to God. But this was a work that he points out was among the Gentiles. And in this day, this is such a unique testimony because the Jews, you have to understand, for generations were the ones that had God's word being revealed to them. It was the Jewish prophets that were speaking to the Jews. It was the Jews that had God's promises. But now the work of Jesus Christ having been finished on the cross, they had learned that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Greeks too. It was for the Gentiles. And Paul is rejoicing in this. And as Paul rejoiced in the work of God through the work of the gospel... Notice what happens with everybody else. You see there in the beginning of verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. It's a good thing to rehearse the work of God so that others too may rejoice in the work that God is doing. We sang the song this morning, praise Him, praise Him, Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. But as Paul talks about the work of God that He has wrought among the Gentiles, I think it's very important that we remember that the work of God, the work of the gospel is primarily a spiritual transformation that takes place in people's lives. You say, why is that so important? Well, as you'll see in a little bit, the people later on in verse 20, they hear that God's working in the Gentiles, but they're really concerned about something else. They were concerned about outward conformity. And they were so concerned about the outward conformity that they missed what God was doing spiritually in people's lives. In fact, they told lies about what Paul had said and twisted his words. 
You see, the work of the gospel is spiritual transformation. These Gentiles were not just converting to another religion of good works. No, they were receiving forgiveness from sin. The work of the gospel is a miracle. Doing good works is just discipline. It's discipline. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do good works. But the work of the gospel is something that transforms you from the inside out. When I was a youth pastor, I remember one time having a number of teens come to our youth group that looked very different from some of the other teens in our youth group. They dressed in a way that people would say is a particular style that's following after something that's ungodly. And that can bother us when we see somebody dressing or presenting themselves in a way that is pointing towards things that are other than the things of God and His Word. But you see, those teens needed more than just going to the J.C. Penney and buying some new clothes. They needed heart transformation. If you just go and buy new clothes, you have the same sinner just wearing new clothes. In fact, somebody described it to me this way. They may have idols that are bad, but giving them good idols, they're still idols. They need to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some outward change. In fact, we understand from God's Word that when you are truly transformed on the inside, it will show up on the outside. But the work of the gospel is a work of God. It's a spiritual transformation. What do I mean by that? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us very clearly that without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And that in Christ, we have life. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's easy to boast in our own works. Paul wasn't boasting in his works. He was glorying in the work of God to transform their lives. The work of the gospel is a spiritual transformation. The work of the gospel also brings glory to God. See, outward change, if we're not careful, can bring glory to us. But inward change is something only God can do. I, I can't change your heart, but God can. I can't bring you to spiritual life, but God can. That's something that is a work of God. And as the work of God takes place in your heart and brings you to spiritual life, now you can experience the change on the outside. And now that outward change now is something that brings glory to God rather than glory to you. But if you are just put on some different clothes this morning just so you could look good to people at church, that didn't do anything for you on the inside. If you say, well, I, I better change what I'm saying and I better not use those words because I'm going to be at church this morning. That's not helping you at all. That brings glory to you perhaps because you have enough willpower to change those things. But there's no spiritual transformation. There's no glory that goes to God. At best, the glory goes to you. Paul here is careful to give the glory to God and as he gives glory to God, the others around him do as well. You see, this transformation that was taking place wasn't just something that only worked for Jewish people. It also worked for Gentiles as well. This took place 
And we see this on display as Peter was working with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And remember when Peter came back and reported to the saints at Jerusalem, they didn't believe that a Gentile could receive the Holy Spirit of God. I'm sure thankful that Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit of God, by the way. Anybody else with me this morning? Acts 11, 18, though, after Peter described what God had done in Cornelius' life, he said, when they heard these things, they held their peace and they glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means to lift Him up, to make Him known. And yesterday, Shandy decided to make homemade cinnamon rolls. I came home, I had a busy day yesterday, and I came home in between meetings, and I, that smell of cinnamon rolls filled the whole house. And I said, wow, this smells good, I can't wait eat some of those cinnamon rolls. Last night, we loaded up some of those cinnamon rolls in my car and drove them all the way down to Texas Women's Hospital to visit Grace Ma, and she got some of the cinnamon rolls, and I just had to watch them go to Grace Ma. But after I got home, I got a plate. I put some supper on the plate, and I finished my dinner. I had a clean plate, and then I got two of those cinnamon rolls and I put them on the plate they had a thick layer of icing on the top they were so good and I ate those cinnamon rolls and they were as good as you are imagining them to be right now that's how good they were this morning at nine o'clock Shandy was teaching a ladies class and she brought I think some of those cinnamon rolls now they're a day old they're still pretty good and she brought those this morning and shared those with the ladies in the 9 o'clock service, Abe was trying to leave the 9 o'clock service and go to the ladies' class just to get one of those cinnamon rolls. You know what I just did? I glorified my wife's cinnamon rolls. I told you about them. I made you think, man, that sounds good. I wish I could have some of those cinnamon rolls. You know, in just a small way, that's a picture of what we ought to do when we glorify Jesus Christ. Because he's better than cinnamon rolls. You know, the scripture even says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But you know, if you haven't had taste of a cinnamon roll in a while, you might kind of, but boy, when you smell that scent, you go, oh, yeah, that's cinnamon roll. And I believe as, as Christians today, we need to be constantly sharing the goodness of what God is doing in our lives and in other people's lives around us. Because as God is glorified, other people get a little taste and say, I want some of that too. I wish I had that. I wish I could enjoy that. Hey, can I come over later and, and hear where you got that? How did you find that? Christians today, when we get caught up in all kinds of other stuff that don't bring glory to God, we're not giving anybody a good taste of what God is like. Paul brought in some incredible encouragement to the believers, to the leaders there in the church of Jerusalem because he was careful to declare to them particularly all that God had wrought among the Gentiles. 
And because of that, others glorified God as well. Paul, as he ministered back in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of Pisidia, there were a group of Jews who rejected the gospel message. And so Paul went, verse 47 and 48, and he said, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, remember that? Uttermost part of the earth. Here it is again, unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified. Here it is again, our word. They lifted up, they made known the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Many of them trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The work of the gospel is a work of God. It's a work of God. But go with me, if you will, back to Acts 21 and look at verse 20, the second part of it. Because after they glorified the Lord, they then, it says, and they said unto him, Thou seest, brother Paul, but yes, that's great what God's doing among the Gentiles, but how many thousands of Jews there are, which believe, they're believers too, and they're all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Paul, they've heard that as Gentiles are getting saved, that's good, but you're telling the Jews that they can forsake the law of Moses. By the way, that wasn't true. And I'll show you that here in just a moment. But that's what they've heard. And it says, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Hey, Paul, it's good what's going on in the Gentiles, but we've got some concerns about your ministry. Paul, we're zealous of the law around here. Yeah, it's good all those Gentiles are getting saved, but... We've got some traditions that need to be upheld. We have some customs that need to be followed through with. And Paul, we're concerned that our traditions are not being carried out the way they should. I have to imagine if I'm Paul, that's a little bit discouraging to hear. Hey, guys, give it a break. Can't you rejoice in what God is doing? What's your problem? I would say this, while tradition is not wrong, and tradition can be good, and Paul never speaks against and says the tradition, they, they shouldn't continue to do these things, and I'll show you that in a minute, but while tradition can be good, an emphasis on tradition can distract from the gospel. An emphasis on tradition can distract from the gospel. Please listen carefully. I, I'm not advocating that we throw out things that we would say are traditional Christianity. We live in a world today that says, well, if it's tradition, throw it out. It's bad. I'm just saying we need to be careful that we keep traditions in their proper place. Because tradition can distract from the gospel. That's what it did for these Jewish believers. 
Luke clearly records they believed. These were not unsaved people, but they believed and they still wanted to hold to their Jewish traditions. See, sometimes keeping the law is confused with receiving the gospel. Paul did a lot of writing, especially in Romans and Galatians, on law and grace. He's very clear when he says in Romans 3 and verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The law can't save you. But what the law can do is show you that you're a sinner. The law can show you that you're a sinner. Keeping the law is not the means to salvation. Keeping the law is not the means to keeping your salvation. Because the only way you stay saved is the same way you got saved, by grace. God's grace that He gives to you. Don't miss the point. He's not saying that there shouldn't be some outward change, that you shouldn't live a life of obedience to the Lord, that you shouldn't be holy in your lifestyle. But sometimes we can confuse holy living or outward, uh, an outward holy living with inward transformation. See, the, the starting point is really important here. We have to start with the work of the gospel that transforms us from the inside and brings us to outward change on the outside. If we start on the outside and try to work to the inside, it never works out. An emphasis on tradition can distract from the gospel. The gospel brings inward transformation that will result in outward change. Look over it. Romans 14, Romans 14, 5 and 6, Paul deals with this issue. He says, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Some people celebrate holidays, feasts, special events. He said, other people don't. What does he say about it? He says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In other words, if you're going to celebrate the holiday, make sure you have a good reason for why you're celebrating. If you're not, make sure you have a good reason for why you don't. Be fully persuaded. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Too many people with many things in their life just say, I don't know why I do that. I just do it. I, I just... Well, that's not going to help you. But notice what he says in verse 6 in Romans 14. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. These are those that are keeping the dietary restrictions that God had placed upon the Jews in the Old Testament. Hey, it's not wrong if you decide that you shouldn't eat pork. But it's not wrong if you decide you can eat pork. That's what he's saying. But those who are not eating pork shouldn't look at those who are and think they're more spiritual. Those who are not celebrating a holiday or are celebrating a holiday shouldn't look at those who don't celebrate the holiday and say, what's wrong with them? Why? Because we've elevated our tradition. And your tradition may, do it, may be doing something or not doing something, but we've now elevated our tradition up, and that emphasis on tradition now becomes a distraction from the gospel. And this is a tough thing for all of us because we all love our traditions. 
mean, every family, I remember that's, that's like a huge conversation, right? When you first start dating, well, what's your family tradition? And then you go over to their family meal for this particular, well, this is how we always do this. This is how we do birthdays. This is how we do this holiday and that holiday. Great! Make sure you have a reason. And in your heart, make sure you're doing it as to the Lord. But everybody may not do things the way you do it. Make sure that you can give thanks to God for what you're doing. The work of the gospel is sometimes confused with keeping the law. Sometimes confused with keeping the law. Now, I want you to notice what happens next because, remember, they're saying, hey, we're believers, but we're concerned, Paul, that you're sharing this message of you don't need to be circumcised. That wasn't the message. Notice I just read the verse from Romans 14. Paul said, hey, if you're going to do it, do it as to the Lord. If not, that's okay. But he's not telling them to stop doing this. You should not circumcise your children anymore. He's never said that. So the Jewish elders then come up with a solution. They said, Paul, we've got four guys here who have taken a vow. They've shaved their heads. I didn't take a vow this week. I just <laughs> cut my hair. But... Uh, they said, these four men have taken a vow. Most likely, we think this was probably a Nazarite vow that they'd taken. You can read about that back in the book of Leviticus, where they'd cut their hair off, they burned it as part of their sacrifice to the Lord, and then they were going to let their hair grow until the vow was completed. Sometimes you think of the Nazarite, somebody just with really long hair. Well, they actually start with really short hair, but then it gets long because they don't cut it until the vow is complete. And as part of this vow, they would go down to the temple and make a series of sacrifices. And so their idea is this. Hey, Paul, we've got these four men who have taken this vow. We want you to hang out with them for a few days and help them make their sacrifices in the temple. If you do that, that will be a demonstration to these Jewish believers who are also really strongly keeping the law that you are okay with sacrifice. And this is all right if... if uh, if they do sacrifices as well, and you're in agreement with them, you're part of them. Now, think about this. Did Paul have to do that? No. Paul didn't have to go make those sacrifices anymore. But I want you to notice as I read, he does go with them to participate in this. Look at verse 23. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take, purify thyself with them, be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. The things people have heard about you, Paul, that you're telling people not to follow the law, they'll know it's nothing because you're going to be following this Nazarite vow. He says, but thou, that thou also walkest orderly and keepest the law. And then this is interesting in verse 25 because it's almost, you can hear these Jewish elders sort of backpedaling a little bit. They're like, well, as touching the Gentiles, which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. This is the same thing that James said at the end of the Jerusalem council back in Acts chapter 15 when they had the argument about circumcision and whether or not a believer needed to be circumcised to be saved. And they wrote this big thing, and they said, well, they don't have to be circumcised, but they need to keep themselves from these other things. So you can hear them saying here, hey, we want you to show that you're following the law, but we still understand, we want you to know, the Gentiles don't have to do these things. 
But notice what Paul does. Verse 26, then Paul took them in. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So what's the point? Well, see, I believe that the work of the gospel may require the limiting of personal freedom. Paul didn't have to do this. He didn't have to go to the temple. He didn't have to offer sacrifices. So why did he do it? Because Paul cared more about the gospel than he did about his personal freedom. He limited his freedom to expand his ministry, to continue his ministry. He could have just said, you know what? We brought this offering back to you people. We've traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles by foot, by boat. I mean, remember there were people lying in wait to kill Paul on his way back to Jerusalem? We brought my, we've done everything. And now you want me to go that back to the temple and make sacrifice, do all these things just to prove that I'm still one of you? Can't you see it? I think that would be a natural response, but that's not Paul's response. He just goes and he does it with them. Why? Because the work of the gospel may require the limiting of personal freedom. And I think we can learn from this example that limiting your freedom is not wrong. Often when it comes to the work of the gospel, you see people say, well, now I'm free to live however I want. I have Christ. I, I can do whatever I want. It's like I'm on my way to heaven. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good to go. That's not the attitude of Scripture at all. No, the attitude of Scripture is, yeah, you're free in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. But it's not a license now to do whatever you want. No. Rather, if you care about the souls of other people, if you care about bringing glory to God, you're willing to limit yourself to give up freedom so that you could minister to other people. Heard about a friend a while back. He's involved in some ministry work. And he, this was a few years ago, not that many years ago, five years ago, he came across a really great deal on a used car. I, that's why I had to tell you it was a few years ago because you'd be hard-pressed to find one of those today. And he was able, I think he told me he was able to get a, it was a used but in good shape, a Mercedes, and I think he paid $10,000 for it. He thought, well, this is a great car. This will be, you know, I can drive it. It's got a, you know, it'll be a nice car. It'll be comfortable, all these things. Well, because of that, He's now driving this Mercedes. People started looking at him and saying, well, what are you doing in your position driving a Mercedes, taking advantage of things? And he told me this. He said, I had to sell the Mercedes and buy a $25,000 Honda just so people wouldn't judge me for driving a Mercedes. So he spent way more money. Is he free to drive a Mercedes? Yeah. Now, don't worry. I didn't buy a Mercedes this week. But is it worth limiting your freedom so that you can minister to somebody else? How many times in our life do we want to stand up for our rights? And I'm thankful for the rights that we've been given. But I wonder if we ought to follow the example of Christ, of Paul in this passage, 
who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He went as a lamb before those who would slaughter him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. I'm so thankful that by his stripes we're healed. The work of the gospel may require the limiting of personal freedom. It's not wrong to limit your freedom. But I would say this, limiting your freedom requires spiritual maturity. It's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to sell your car that you just bought, go buy another car and spend more money just so people will stop using that as an issue against you. That's not easy. And it could cause you to say, you know what, these people... I'll go find somebody else. That's just dumb. What is? But if you're not going to minister to people who have sin problems, then you're not going to minister to anybody. If you're not going to minister to people who judge you, then you're not going to minister to anybody. You see, at the end of the day, our ministry is about, remember, giving glory to God. And when I give glory to God, what other people think of me is not the most important thing. But if what they think of me is keeping me from ministering to them, and if I can, within my power, have something I can do about that, I ought to limit my freedom so that I can minister more effectively to them. This does require some maturity. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 about this in verse 20. It says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. There's great value in a soul, right? He says, to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. He's talking about the Gentiles. People didn't like it when Paul went and ate with the Gentiles. They didn't like it when Jesus did either. But can you imagine some of the Gentile believers might have said, Paul, why are you going back into the sacrifice? And Paul would have had to turn around back to the Gentiles. Hey, listen, to minister to these people over here, I need to help them work through some issues too. Just like they're having to work through some issues for me to minister to you, and you feel like, I'm just caught in the middle and I'm going back and forth. Am I just a people pleaser trying to do whatever? No, I need to be a God pleaser. I need to serve Him. But in so doing, it might mean, yeah, I, I could give up my freedom. I can do I'm willing to give that up for the sake of somebody else. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Being all things to all men is not a license to live however you want. But it does mean you're free to give up your freedom so that you can minister to other people. It's difficult to minister when God's work is misunderstood, but it's still possible. It's still possible if we're willing to limit our personal freedoms. 
But notice what happens next in the story. As Paul is in the temple, it says, when the seven days, I'm in verse 27, were almost ended, the Jews were to Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Here's Paul limiting his freedom, doing exactly what he was asked to do, and because of that, they turn on him. They laid hands on him. They cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Can I say this, by the way, when you're limiting your freedom to minister to others, not everybody will appreciate it. In fact, they may take it the wrong way. It would have been better for Paul just to not be in the temple at all. Paul was in the temple because he loved the Jews. And the same ones he loved now turned, his back, turned their backs on him. They accuse him. They lie about him. He's polluted this place. See, it says, there's a parenthesis in verse 29, they'd seen before with him in the city Trophimus an Ephesian. Trophimus, he's a Greek. He's from Ephesus. They'd seen him around Jerusalem, and they just assume, well, yeah, he's probably in the temple too. No, he wasn't in the temple. There's no record of him in the temple. But they're accusing him of this. And it says, And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut, and as they went about to kill him. Here's how bad it gets for Paul. Tidings came to the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. By the way, in all of this description, did you notice there's no record of any of the Jewish believers coming to Paul's aid? Where's James? Where's the rest of the elders? Where's all the other, all these thousands of Jewish believers? See, even in our belief and following of Christ, our traditions are really important to us, to the place that sometimes even good people might find themselves on the wrong side of the battle. This is a hard one. It's one that requires wisdom from God, and it requires, I think, a willingness to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, not to jump on bandwagons and rip on people just because they look a little bit different, sound a little bit different, but to be careful to make sure that we're running things through the Word of God. And even when it comes to that, we still need to trust God. We still need to trust God. Paul's carried off. As the people are about to kill him, the the, uh, Roman soldiers come rushing in from next door where they were stationed, and they, they stop the fight, and they get Paul, and the Bible tells us they put him on their shoulders because the crowd was so much around him, and they carried him back. And as they're going up the steps, Paul looks to the Roman leader, and he says, hey, can I talk to the people for a minute? <laughs> and the leader says, wait, you speak Greek? He says, I thought you were the Egyptian that led 4,000 murderers out into the wilderness. <laughs> they mistook Paul for this insurrectionist, this fighter. Paul says, no, no, that's not me. He says, I, I'm from Cilicia. 
I'm from Tarsus. And he says, can I speak to the people? He says that in verse 39, suffer me to speak to, unto the people. And it says, and when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand to the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. And what does he speak? Well, in the next 22 verses of Acts chapter 22, Paul shares his personal testimony. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Paul's testimony of salvation has been shared, but this is the first time in the book of Acts that Paul shares it with his own, in his own words. And in this testimony, he confesses to being a part of killing Stephen. In this testimony, he talks about how he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. In this testimony, he talks about how he was a Pharisee, how he kept the law. But even as he was busy persecuting Christians, even as he had taken a whole bunch of letters with him to go to Damascus, while he was on that road to Damascus at noon, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It was there on that road to Damascus when Paul cried out to the Lord and trusted him. And then soon after getting to Damascus, remember he's blinded, and Ananias comes to him and gives him his sight back and tells him, you're going to be the minister to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so then Paul goes on and ministering even comes back to Jerusalem. While he's there, God shows him through a vision that, hey, they're going to try to capture you. And so he leaves and goes. But there's an interesting statement I want you to see. Verse number 21, as God speaks to Paul. This was Paul remembering when God spoke to him back when he was in Jerusalem, just after he'd been saved. And God said to Paul in verse 21, He said to me, Depart, I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And when he said those words, the people wouldn't listen anymore. And you may have wondered this morning why I've made a big deal about tradition and all of these things. It's because when you look at this next story and how the people respond just when he says that God sent me to the Gentiles, they go they lose their minds. Because see, when tradition becomes a big thing, now all of a sudden, my relationship with God becomes a lot about me and what I want and how I think things should be rather than what do you want, Lord? What are you doing? God, I'm going to submit myself to your word and to your way. And it was proved that these, the attitude of these people was wrong because as soon as he says, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Notice verse 22. It says, And they gave him audience unto this word. They wouldn't even listen to him past the word Gentiles. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. What do you do when God's work is misunderstood? You say, well, I, I can limit my freedom, but even in so doing, and we should, that doesn't bring all the answers. Everybody doesn't appreciate it. I would say this, that the work of the gospel always 
requires your obedience to God. Because here's the thing. You can limit your freedom, but you still can't please everybody. You can do your best to serve out of a kind heart and look for those in need and say, well, what could I say? How could I say this differently? What, what could I do differently? What, what, how could I explain this in a way that you'll understand that will minister to you? But at the end of the day, <laughs> there will be some that still reject it. So the work of the gospel always requires your obedience to God. At the end of the day, I need to just obey what God has told me to do. See, God told him, go, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So I think you could say it this way. We ought to obey God's call even if it's unpopular. If God's called you to do something and you know it's from God, then go do it and do it with all your might. There may be some that disagree. There may be some that misunderstand. There may be some that even want to kill you. But go obey God and do what He wants you to do. You ought to obey God's call even if it's difficult. Even if it's difficult. And you ought to obey God's call even if others will not obey. See, there's a world... It's lost without Christ. And I realize that when you look at somebody, it's easy to say, well, they're dressed this way, or they said this word, or they went to this place, or they, they did this, or they did that. They celebrate this. They don't celebrate that. It's easy to look at all those things and say, well, I just don't know if they could even really be saved. Let's leave the saving work up to God. But I don't want to stand in the way of somebody else who says, I'm going to go reach people for Christ. Even if that person is called to reach people that are a little bit different than the people I've been called to reach. Well, the way they do it's a little bit different than the way that I might do it. Now, I know you might hear this say, well, that sounds very close to compromise. Well, again, let's just consider what the Word of God says and make sure we're just in line with it and not just the things that we're most comfortable with or this is how we've always done it, so this is therefore the only way it could be done. Okay? I'm all for integrity and separation from sin and wickedness. But they were calling Paul a sinner. They said he shouldn't even live on the earth anymore. Why? Because they lied about him. Even what they claimed he was doing, he wasn't even doing. This happens in the Christian world all the time. I heard, I heard about so-and-so. Well, have you talked to him? No, but I heard. Okay. Good. Well, I just saw this one thing and I didn't like it. Well, if people only saw you in one split second, they probably wouldn't like you either. I saw this clip online. Haven't we learned anything yet that what you see online does not explain everything that there is to know about everything? I'm concerned when we take God's work. We try to put our work up next to it. 
and think that our work is as important as God's work. And then we let the stuff that's really important to us distract us and keep us from God's work. What I love about this, if you, if you take it back a step, Paul wasn't telling them to stop making their sacrifices. In fact, I think they could have continued on celebrating their things and going through following some of their rules that they had. And as long as they understood this is just our tradition, this is our personal standard, this is our preference, this is what we've decided for our family, this is what it's going to look like for, for our church, this is what we're going to do. I, I don't see any problem with that. The problem is when we want to get on everybody else who clearly are just doing the work of the gospel. Well, but they, they weren't sacrificing the same way we did. Their service time wasn't at the same time as ours. They didn't wear exactly what we wore. Okay. If God's convicted you about a particular area, then do it. You shouldn't compromise what you believe to be true just so you can feel better about yourself. At the same time, you don't have to compromise what you believe to minister to somebody else. Right? say, well, how does this work out practically? Okay, so at the end of the day, I'm going to provide for my family as best I can, and I want them to be able to live in a house. Now, some would say, well, your house should be, you know, sort of in the middle. It shouldn't be the nicest house, shouldn't be the least house. Okay, so, so, I, so I live in a house. There might be somebody else says, you know, you're really hurting your ministry to homeless people because unless you go and live with them on the street, you can't really relate to them. Well, I have a responsibility to provide for my family. That's more important, that responsibility to take care of them than it is for me to live on the street so I can experience ministry as a homeless person. Now, would it be wrong if somebody was in a position where they didn't have to provide for their family and their kids to say, you know what, I'm going to have a ministry on the street to the homeless. And I'm going to go and I'm going to camp down there and I'm going to live with them and I'm going to minister. Not wrong at all. But the guy living like that, is he going to smell like you smell? No. Is he going to be wearing the same things you're wearing? No. But is he perhaps going to have a very effective gospel ministry? Yeah, he could. Does it keep us from working together? Well, I may not go stay in his tent, but if I can help him, I ought to. So what I'm saying is not everybody's place of living is going to look the same. Not everybody's ministry is going to look the same. Not, not everything that you're called to do is going to look the same as what I'm called to do. But ultimately, instead of me trying to compare and say, well, my ministry is clearly more important to their, than theirs because I'm ministering to wealthier people or I'm ministering to people that have higher educations or I'm ministering in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or this city or that city or no I'm here to minister to God and to serve him and follow him I know I've covered maybe too much ground this morning a lot of ground this morning but this is just something that as I'm looking at Paul as he's 
coming back to Jerusalem, I see a man who has served God faithfully for so many years and seen God do so many wonderful things. And he comes back really to his own people and they reject him because they hadn't moved past in their own minds something that really was ultimately just a tradition at the end of the day. And they missed out on the work of God. Paul wasn't trying to get them to change their tradition. He was just trying to remind them that all the glory belongs to the Lord. So what should we take from this? Well, I'll tell you what the Lord has challenged me about is that I need to be faithful to what God's called me to do, to go share the gospel, to make disciples, to preach right here in Houston, Texas, right here to minister to the people that God gives us and to reach this community with the gospel. God's challenged me that there are others that God will call to other churches and to other mission fields and other places, and I want to encourage them and help them and send them as best I can and just do whatever I can to support that work in, the work, in what God wants us to do. I want to be willing to say, God, if there's something that you convict me about that I am holding on to, but it's a selfish thing I'm holding on to, that I could give up, even though I'm free to do it, that you want me to give so that I can serve you better, I want to be willing to do that in my own life. And I hope that that would be your heart as well. I don't know exactly what the Lord would speak to you about this morning from this message, but I do know that if you serve God for any length of time, you face situations where things were misunderstood, where people disagreed, or you saw someone going this direction, that direction, you were trying to discern which way should I go. And so I hope at the very least this morning as we finish here in a moment with a word of prayer that the Lord, you would take time to talk to the Lord and speak to him about what he showed you and how he's encouraged you or challenged you this morning. Because at the end of the day, our focus needs to be on the Lord. Outward change will take place, but it has to start with the inward transformation. And if we get too caught up holding on to a tradition that we forget the importance of sharing the gospel and the power that God has to change lives, we're going to get off track. Let's keep our eyes on Him, whatever we do. Lord, we love you. Lord, I understand a lot of things that were said this morning that could be misunderstood. And Lord, I just pray for wisdom that we would stay true to your word and that we would lift your name up. We don't need to be like the world. You've called us to come out from the world and be separate. And we ought to be separate. Lord, in our desire to be separate, we must not forget we are still to be in the world while not of it. Lord, help us to be lights for Christ. That we would reflect clearly the image of your Son to this world that is lost and dying. And we would not let the things that should not divide us, divide us. Help us to stand on truth and not just on tradition. Help us to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Help us this morning as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.